0: If you will, I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. In the providence of God, Pastor Todd Murray came back from the Banner of Truth conference in the United Kingdom with a gift book written by Ian Murray entitled The Old Evangelicalism. Old Truths for a New Awakening. It is an excellent new book, a book of addresses, which Ian Murray, founding trustee of the Banner of Truth Trust and good friend of this ministry, has delivered over some 30 years now of his speaking ministry. The reason why this book was given to me in such a kind providence I believe, was that some sections of the book of addresses are very applicable to what is at issue here in the first part of Romans 7. From what we covered last time in verses 1 to 6, and what we want to cover today in verses 7 to 13, there is much to say regarding how we speak to people about their need for Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins. It has to do with how we present the gospel and how it is that people need to realize how far short they come when compared to the standard of God's law. Ian Murray writes, for example, how the law of God as a preparation to receiving the sweet news of the gospel is simply not much preached these days within evangelicalism. Hence the need, as the book title suggests, to return to the old evangelicalism, old truths for a new awakening. Listen to a portion of what Ian Murray writes in this wonderful new book. The revelation of God in Scripture is intended to lead us to this discovery of our sinfulness about ourselves. It is focused particularly in the standard God requires in His law, given in the Ten Commandments, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. It is there that we learn that we are to love God with the totality of our being and our neighbor as ourselves. The law enlightens us to a universe in which God in His majesty is at the center. The Son of God, instead of appointing another standard and setting aside the Ten Commandments, perfectly exemplified them and expounded them in searching detail. No greater mistake can be made than to suppose that preaching the law is just Old Testament preaching. It is no less the law of Christ, Matthew 5:17, and the effect is the same. The knowledge of God does not, therefore, first come to sinners with comfort. Rather, it is intensely disturbing. Mouths are shut. Or if they speak at all, it is to say words as, Against you, you only, have I sinned. Psalm 51.4 Woe is me, for I am lost. Isaiah 6.5 you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. Psalm 90, verse 8. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job 42, 5. In another section of the book, Murray writes again about preaching God's law to sinners. If men may experience conviction and only a temporary conversion under the preaching of the law, it might be thought that the whole process is needless. After all, the law cannot change the heart. But this reasoning is wrong. Those whom God is bringing to salvation, he first humbles by the same truths as are addressed to others. The law dispels their ignorance. And shows that God justly requires their obedience. Sin is pinpointed. Conscience is aroused. And self-condemned. Now the individual begins to understand that he is really lost. Alienated from God. Let the duties of the law be pressed home on this awakened person. And he will try to obey. And when he hears of the duties of repentance and faith. He may try to perform them. But it is only to find that sin is stronger than all his endeavors and resolutions. Why preach the law to the unregenerate? Because it teaches them not what they can do, but what they ought to do. Far from encouraging salvation by works, it demonstrates the impossibility of rendering the obedience that God requires. It brings home to the non-Christian that he cannot change his own nature. He cannot save himself it was of conversion that Jesus was speaking when He said, with men this is impossible. And a little earlier than this, Murray quotes Charles Haddon Spurgeon where Spurgeon is speaking of his own conversion. Spurgeon says, My heart was fallow and covered with weeds, but on a certain day the great husbandman came, husbandman means gardener or farmer, the great husbandman came And began to plow my soul. Ten black horses were his team, and it was a sharp plowshare that he used, and the plowers made deep furrows. The Ten Commandments were these black horses, and the justice of God, like a plowshare, tore my spirit. I was condemned, undone, destroyed, lost, helpless, hopeless. I thought hell was before me. I prayed but found no answer of peace. It was long with me thus. Spurgeon is then again quoted by Murray. The Christian minister should declare very pointedly the evil of sin. Open up the spirituality of the law as our Lord did and show how it is broken by evil thoughts, intents and inclinations. By this means, many sinners will be pricked in their hearts. Robert Flockhart used to say, It is no use trying to sew with the the silken thread of the gospel unless we pierce away for it with the sharp needle of the law. The law, Spurgeon says, goes, goes first like the needle and draws the gospel thread after it. That's the way to preach Christ. You preach the law. You preach the standard of the law. You preach obedience to the law. You preach that there must be a response of the heart to the law of God. To bring a person to utter despair. To bring them to a point where they are beyond their own capacities. To show them even that they have no capacity rightly to respond to God. And I give you these quotations to show you that this has been the true nature of biblical gospel preaching for centuries, and it is precisely the way the Apostle Paul himself preached. You follow along as I read Romans 7, verses 7 to 13. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The Apostle Paul is showing us ever so clearly the law's relationship to sin. That's why the title of this morning's message is The Law and Sin. What is its relationship? He's showing us, also by way of contrast, the utter sinfulness of sin and the holiness and righteousness and goodness of the law. Notice how he does this. If you're looking for an outline of this passage, Paul shows us three things. He shows us, first of all, in verses 7 and 8a, the first part of verse 8, the relationship between law and sin. The relationship between law and sin. Secondly, in verses 8b through verse 11, he shows us the results of law and sin. The results of law and sin. And thirdly and finally, from verses 12 and 13, he shows us the reality of law and sin. The reality. The relationship, the results, and the reality Of law and sin. Let's talk about the first one, the relationship between law and sin. Look again at verses 7 and the first part of verse 8. What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I want you to see that Paul is anticipating yet another objection by those who would question what he's teaching here in Romans 7. He's sensing, I believe, this very thing because of what he's just said in verse 6. Look back at verse 6. But now, he says, we are released from the law. Having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Now if you really read verse 6 and you look at it and study upon it and meditate upon it, you might, like someone, immediately say, as we suppose they did in Paul's day, Well, if we're now serving in the newness of life in the Spirit having died to that which held us captive so that we don't serve this old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit, hey, the the very law must have been that which held me captive and that must have meant that that's bad. The law, if it holds me in chains, must be a bad thing, not a good thing. This law must be evil. This thing that holds me in its sway must be a very evil thing. If it is the thing that has held me captive, and if the Holy Spirit has set me free from that old written code, then the law of God must have been that which produced all this evil in me. Yea, if the law of God which held me captive to do all of my evil deeds, I must be rid of it. I must throw it off from me. It must be a bad thing. And now because I live in the newness of life in the Spirit, I'm free from that captivity. Hallelujah. The law is bad. The Spirit is good. And it also might be that Paul could be answering someone's possible wrong-headed assumption in verse 5 of chapter 7. Look at it. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law We're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Aha, someone might say. Our sinful passions, Paul says, are aroused by the very law of God. And if these sinful passions are aroused by the law, that again must be a very bad thing. This must prove that the law is itself sinful because it produces sinfulness in all of these sinful passions of my flesh. And indeed, that is what some people say, that the law is bad and the spirit is good. But Paul answers these objections in verse 7 in that characteristic style, as he said a couple of times before, when it has been asserted about God and His grace and now His law, by no means, absolutely not. If you ask me the question, is the law sin? I tell you a thousand times no. If you're going to make a leap to an incredible conclusion concerning the law of God that it is inherently sinful, I say by no means. And then he goes on to explain the relationship between law and sin. He's going to tell us the answer. He's not just going to say by no means. He gives us the information. He gives us the answer. Notice the relationship between God's law and mankind's sin. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law... I would not have known sin. It's almost as though Paul is saying, absolutely not is the law of God to be seen as synonymous with sin. Yet, yet, that is, I will try to show you that there is sort of a link. There is a tie between their relationships to each other. And that link, of course, is to show what sin is, And to show what sin does when the law of God is placed alongside it. It is not synonymous with sin, but sin happens when the law is placed alongside it. It's almost as though he's saying, no, the law is not sin. But I want to show you what sin does, what sin is, and its implications when the law is run alongside of it. And all of this, beloved, goes back to the very truth that I was endeavoring to show you in the introduction to my message. Paul is emphatically stating what he has already stated in Romans 3:20. Look at chapter 3 verse 20. He has already said it. He's already hinted at it. It's almost as though he doesn't need to say what he says here in Romans 7 But he wants to make sure that no one sees any equivocation on his part. Chapter 3, verse 20, he already has said, through the law comes knowledge of sin. You see, through our knowledge of what God's standard is, comes the knowledge of how far short we fall from it. And he's not teaching here in chapter 3, verse 20, or here in chapter 7, about the fact that the law didn't exist before God's law was given through Moses on Mount Sinai. Oh, the the technical aspect of the law. The actual law didn't exist, but there was a conscience. Sin did exist. It wasn't as though sin was never in existence in the world before the law was given on Mount Sinai. We know that's not true. He's even said in chapter 5, hasn't he, verse 13, sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Sin was experienced in the world before the giving of the law. But his point here in verse 7 is that sin is known. How is it known? It is known in its ugliness, in its ugly fullness. It's seen in its most hideous forms when God's Word, His law, His standard is revealed. When the law comes in the human consciousness of an individual It's designed to show him how sinful he really is. I never knew how sinful I was until I was confronted with the awesome standard of the majesty and the holiness of God. You might have had that same experience. Sin was shown to me in such a way as I had never seen it before. I've given you that trivial example about the don't walk on the grass sign. That when we see it in someone's yard or we see it in the business grass of a location and we say to ourselves, I want to step on it. Why? Because the sign says, don't do it. And we all have in our hearts that idea. What does it make us do? Well, because there's a standard, because there's a no-no, we want to say yes, yes. Yes. We'd rather stomp all over that freshly manicured grass just because the sign is there. Just because. you ever seen your little child when you're beginning to teach them to say no to touching something and they begin to touch it and you say no, no. And they look back at you and then they look at that object and then they look back at you and then what do they do? More often than not, they touch the very thing you've said no, no to. Why? Because there is that sense in every human heart that says, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it on my own. And I'll go, of course, from this trivial example of not stepping on the grass to Paul's own example here. Look at verses 7 and 8. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment Produced in me all kinds of covetousness. This is Paul's own version of the example I've just given you, and it's far more a serious breach of God's law than stepping onto someone's grass. I would not have known how covetous I really was apart from the knowledge of God's own standing of purity. Do you realize? That this is not just talking about covetousness. It's talking about the law, the standard of God, that God Himself is holy and that He doesn't want anybody else's stuff. That's God. He's holy. He's perfect. He's not lusting after other people's stuff. He's not coveting. He doesn't lust after anyone else's things. But mankind is not that way. When Adam sinned, he plunged the whole of the human race into sin, including the sin of a sin of lusting, covetousness, or the desire to have what somebody else possesses. That's what coveting means. And when the 10 commandments were given, they reflected God's very nature as one who does not covet. See, what you need to do is not see coveting as something that is so abstract that it doesn't have to do with your relationship with God. It does. Someone might say, well, look, I, I haven't stole that much. I haven't coveted a lot. Just a few things. But certainly not like other people that I've seen. See, when you have that kind of response, you're really saying something abstract. You're not saying something in the concrete. Because if you look In the reflection of the Ten Commandments, in the very nature of God Himself, He is pristinely non-covetous. He doesn't do it ever. He's not marked by that. And so put yourself against the reflection of that character. What do you see? You see that God is holy and majestic And perfect and pristine. And we see ourselves, no matter what degree of covetousness we are, we see ourselves as unholy, unrighteous. Listen to Deuteronomy 5.21. Because what Paul does is he takes the tenth of these ten commandments. Deuteronomy 5.21, just listen to it. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant, or his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. That's the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Don't covet. You say, why does the Apostle Paul use the idea of coveting here? He could have used any of the ten. Why does he mention this one? Well, it may be that Paul is really saying, not that anyone before the law of God was given to Moses had no real consciousness of sin, but that sin's tangible defining, sends complete treachery. Its absolute power to enslave me is most seen when God's law shows me something like this. Don't covet. Don't want, don't have something that belongs to another. Whether it's his wife, or his field, or his ox, or his donkey, or his male servant, or his female servant, don't have, don't lust, don't covet for what you don't possess. And it may also be that Paul is using something like this, because you remember in Philippians chapter 3, it says about Paul, as Paul's giving his testimony there, in essence, as to the law, found what? Blameless. As to the external working of the law, found blameless. In other words, there was nothing in my life on the outside that you could see, that you could blame, that you could accuse me of as a good standing Pharisee. You looked on the outside of my life and all you saw was a law abiding Pharisee. You didn't see me as blamable. You couldn't accuse me of anything. But what does he say here about covening? That's on the inside. That's on the inside. Oh, it may have its manifestations ultimately on the outside. And it may be, like Paul, that you can do a pretty good front on the outside where someone could say about you, well, I don't see any visible evidences of sin in his life or her life. But Paul says, no, we need to take it inside. What about the lusts in my soul? What about the internal covetousness of my heart? Even if I don't always show it, On the outside, we may look good on the outside, but what is within? He says, coveting of all kinds. And didn't it show so readily with the children of Israel the very moment that God's law was being brought down by Moses on Mount Sinai? Uh, You read it very, very quickly even when you read from Exodus chapter 20 and the giving of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and by Exodus 32, what are they doing? They're worshiping a golden calf. The very violation of what God had said for them not to do. They were violating the very thing that he commanded them not to do. And what was the law's purpose? It was to come alongside their sin and to see it in its inflamed condition. Look at what he says in Romans 7 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now notice Paul says it is sin, not law, which is the initiating factor here. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. Again, it's, it's as though sin is personified as you or me. And sin was was taking its uh, cue from the law. From this prohibition. You shall not covet. And it seizes you and it says, oh, yes, I will. Don't covet. Oh, yes, I will. Thousand times. Don't covet. Oh, you can't tell me. I'll have it if I want it. I'll do it if I choose. That's what the law does, doesn't it? It tells you not to do something. Or it tells you to do something and you say, no, I won't. No, I won't obey that. I won't do that. That's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. That's not best. That's what it does. And he says, it produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Epithumion. Covetousness of all kinds. All kinds of lusts. The law says, don't do it. You'll look and act most unlike God if you do. And sin says, because the law says don't do it, it arouses me to do it even more, and I will, and I do. That's what the law does. You put sin here, you put law alongside it, and you scratch up against that sin, and what does it do? It wants to rebel. It wants to say no. And I can't miss telling you at this point, this is the essential difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. It is the non-Christian says, "I despise what the law says. If this is what the law of God says, law of God says, I'll do the opposite, and I will not be repentant about it." But the Christian says, "I delight in the law of God. I don't despise it. And if that is what the law says, this is what I want to do. And even when I don't do it, I'm so grieved at the fact that I haven't done it." And I want to truly repent of it. And I want to do what God says because I love the Creator. I love the lawgiver. And even when you sin, you're so grieved about it. That's not what the non-Christian does. The non-Christian, when the law comes against him, says, no, I won't. You're not going to tell me. You're not going to be Lord over me. I don't like the Creator. I don't like what the Creator's done. I don't like the lawgiver. And when we get into Romans 9... You'll have people who will say, as the clay, to the potter, why did you make me this way? Why did you do that? It's not right. It's not fair. I ask you, what characterizes you? What kind of response characterizes you? Do you cringe at the thought that your sin seized an opportunity through the very commandment of God? Do you acknowledge that all your sin, all of it has produced all kinds of wickedness on top of it within you? Do you desire to repent of your lusts? If you're saying in your heart, yes, I do, I do, I cringe at the very fact that my sin has seized an opportunity through God's wonderful law, I acknowledge the lawlessness of my heart, the wickedness of my desires, I desire to repent of my lusts, and I want with all my heart to be in line with the creator of my soul, the lawgiver of my life. If that's your heart response, you can be confident you're a true Christian. A non-Christian says, how can I get out of that? Oh, I may be saddened at the fact that I was caught doing something that I really want to do, that the world now knows it, but my desire is to keep doing it. How can I figure out a way to continue nurturing my sin? How can I figure out a way to do what I really want to do? See, that's that's the relationship between law and sin. That's the responses to both. Secondly, let's look at the results of law and sin. Look at the latter part of verse 8. Apart from the law, he says, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Maybe we should say it like this about the latter part of of verse 8. Apart from the law, sin lies dormant. Sin lies dormant. Maybe that's better. And I say that because again, I don't want you to go away with the impression that Paul assumes that sin is dead. That it wasn't in existence without the law being there. I've already said Romans 3, Romans 5. Sin existed before the law was manifested to the men and women of Mount Sinai. When Paul is saying these things, he's driving here toward the idea that sin's full wretchedness. It's absolute power. It's capacity to be clearly seen comes fully alive when the commandment comes onto the scene. That's that's the result of the law of God because he says, apart from it, sin lies dormant. doesn't mean sin is not there. It just means that it's not excited to its fullest extent. And this is exactly what he says next. He says in effect in verse 9, I thought I was once alive apart from the law, Because the law wasn't there to be used by sin to fan the flames of my evil, my evil wicked heart. I thought I was less sinful than I really was. But I recognize now with the law, no, no, I am as bad as they say. I am that bad. This is the result of sin When the commandment came, I finally saw sin clearly for what it was. And he says, I died. I died. I died spiritually. Not even in the sense that he wasn't dead before. He was dead spiritually. But now I come to the recognition of it myself. It, It awakened me fully to my sin. It slew me. My sin was so ever before me that I was awakened through the law to the reality that I am justly punished. That's what he's talking about. I I knew I deserved to die because my sin was exposed for all of its ugliness. I knew that I wasn't measuring up to the standard of God's righteousness and Paul is like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 when he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. You see, that's what, that's what preaching does. If you're, if you're in a church that does preaching like that, you're saying that's, that's good gospel preaching. If you're not in a church in which the law is preached to show you how far short you fall, get out of that church. Get out of it. Because it's not true preaching. Paul Here is like Peter, who in the very presence of the Lord, when the Lord Himself did a miraculous thing in that boat, and what was Peter's response? When he saw God, when he saw holiness in the boat, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Why did he say that? Because he recognized that divinity was in the boat. He recognized that he was a sinner. He saw God in His miraculous intervention and he realized i'm undone it's like paul saying what the apostle john said in revelation chapter one when he saw that glorious vision of christ when he saw the risen christ he says in revelation 1:17, when i saw him i fell at his feet though dead why because he saw the brilliance of the person of christ Saw Christ in His utter sinlessness. And what does John say about himself? Well, then I'm, I'm dead. I'm dead. I'll never forget John MacArthur telling me the story of a local prominent pastor in Southern California who said repeatedly in using this illustration about himself that he would be shaving in his bathroom and Jesus would come in and visit him there. And that Jesus would talk with him. And he would talk with Jesus. And I'll never forget John's insightful question to this man who was telling him this very personally. He said, I just have one question for you. Do you keep shaving? Because if you keep shaving, that's not the real Jesus. Because if that's the real Jesus, you're going to be on your face like a dead man. Because you have seen Jesus, and what's worse, He's seen you the holiness of God's standard. Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the ironic thing about this preaching of the law of God, it is precisely as Paul says it here in verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Incredible reversal. God's law promises life. Did not Jesus say to the rich young ruler, Do this and you will what? Live. You you give up all the money that you have and you give it to the poor and you come and follow me. Do this and you will live. Somebody's saying that's work salvation. From the lips of Jesus? Of course it isn't. What's he doing? He's preaching law. He's saying not so that he could do it and gain eternal life by it. He's doing it because he knows that the rich young ruler is covetous in his heart. And he knows that he's not about to give up all that he owns and give it away to the poor. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, if you're not willing to do that, then you don't want me. You want your money. That's the point. You want your money worse than you want obedience to Jesus. Jesus. That's preaching law. That's saying that if you don't measure up to the full standard of the law of God, you cannot be saved. And that's why the disciples said to Jesus, Well, then who can be saved? Who can live up to the full standard of the law of God? That's why Jesus said, With man that's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You do it God's way. You don't try to Be involved in self-salvation. You don't try to do it by way of paying your money to get there. You don't do that by praying your way there. You don't do that by your worship attendance. You don't do it by any of that. You don't do it by any means of good works. You do it God's way. And what God says is this. Try to live up to the standard. And when you say to yourself in the in the presence of a holy God, I can't do it. God says, that's the point. That's the point. You can't, but my son did. And you fall upon the mercy of Jesus Christ and say, you did it on my behalf. My trust is in you. I don't trust in my riches. I don't trust in my authority. I don't trust in my life. I don't trust in my prayers. I don't even trust anything about me. In fact, the whole of salvation is my losing myself of myself. And Paul, here in verse 10, says, The very commandment, could you imagine for a Jewish person, the very commandment that I thought was given to me to produce life, instead produced death in me. Just like he says in Philippians 3, All the stuff that I thought was in my credit column, shock of all shocks, I realized it's in my debit column. What do I do? How do I respond? What's going on here? Verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. You realize that even in churches and ministries, this deception can occur? It's not just coming from the bars and the alleyways, but also the deception which comes when God's law is not upheld as the standard of righteousness. It's not just us saying, well, look at those people over there. I mean, they're a sorry lot. They obviously will never be accepted by God. But look at us. We're in suits. And we're doing all that we can to love our God and to worship our God. And certainly even the Jews themselves of Paul's own day went about, as Romans 10 said, to establish their own righteousness. And even though they had a zeal, he says, they were ignorant of God's righteousness. What is God's righteousness? To show you that you can't do it. To show you that you can't be righteous. And the only standard of righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Multitudes of churches and preachers have allowed this to take place in pulpits all over this land. We need to preach, beloved, the law of God in order for men and women to know their true spiritual condition before God. You you can't just tell people, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. You'll have a better life. The truth of the matter is, with self-denial, you might not have a better life. Your life might be worse for you. But it'll be the best because God is with you. I believe we have a weak evangelicalism around our globe at this hour because we've refused to preach the full orb nature of the evangel itself. We have a watered down preaching of the gospel, which is now almost devoid of the preaching of the standard of the law of God, a standard which He demands that sinners live up to. And since no one could live up to it, we must recognize this about ourselves. That's, that's the point. The preaching of the law is to show me the utter inability of my own human resources. And I fall upon the mercy of Christ for forgiveness. You're in my stead, Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Only to thy cross I cling. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about evangelicalism in the 1950s, over 50 years ago. Quote, There is no true evangelism without the doctrine of sin and without an understanding of what sin is. I do not want to be unfair, but I say that a gospel which merely says come to Jesus and offers Him as a friend and offers a marvelous new life without convicting of sin is not New Testament evangelism. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have so much superficial evangelism. Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. And he says it is is only the man who has been brought to see his guilt in this way, who flies to Christ... For deliverance and redemption. You know, it's it's exactly like Spurgeon's analogy of the ten black horses bringing the ten commandments to bear. And God, the great farmer, uses those ten commandments to plow up the fallow ground of our hearts. But here's the problem. This thing called sin is so sinful and the heart of man is so wicked and it's so hard that it takes years and years and years for some people to be awakened to the deception. And that is exactly what Paul says it is here in verse 11. It's a deception. Sin seized an opportunity and instead of fallow ground being plowed up so that the soil is properly prepared for the gospel seed Rather, deceives me and through the high demands of God, killed me. I'm undone. There is a rousing in me, a rising in my heart, evil of all kinds. Lusts of every kind. You know what we need? We need regeneration. We need God take out the heart of stone and place within it the heart of flesh. We need to be born again. We need Jesus to come and take away our sin. Oh, how we need God to open our eyes to the truth. We need Him, as Robert Flockhart said, to take the straight needle of God's law and pierce it through and over and over again in our hearts so that we may see the good news of the gospel thread taken right through the law's eye needle and stitching us so thoroughly that we may be healed from our mortal wound of sin. That's what we need. Have you been brought low this morning by God's demand? Do you see your poor, wretched, naked, and blind condition as a result of your own sin? Do you recognize that your sin has seized an opportunity Through the commandment in which to deceive you of the true nature of your spiritual condition. You realize there's a spiritual battle going on right now? There's a warfare. God doesn't want the gospel seed to do anything other than penetrate, and yet He allows Satan for His own purposes to blind the minds of the unbelieving. If you're unbelieving here, we need to pray. We need to pray that God will overturn the blindness of Satan's deception. And whatever you do, whatever you do, please don't blame your sin upon anyone else but yourself. Don't blame it on God. Don't blame it on His holy law. That's in essence what Paul's saying here. Don't blame your sin on the law of God. Is the law sin? By no means. And he shows us here thirdly and quickly the reality of law and sin. Look at verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. If there's ever any doubt, he says, I'm telling you straight up, the law is holy. The commandment, that tenth commandment, all the commandments is holy and righteous. They are good. And then he asks that question again. Did that which is good, that is the law, the commandment, did it bring death to me? That which is good? No. No, it wasn't the law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. That's the law. The law is good. Sin is bad. In order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul says, very simple reality. Very simple reality. The law of God is holy, it's righteous, it's good, and the sin of man is death-producing. And sin itself, when brought out into the open through God's law, exposed to the light of God's law, it is seen to be sin beyond measure. Wow! I mean, if you really ask yourself the question, how could the law be unholy, unrighteous, and bad when when it is the perfect reflection of God's holy character? Well, it can't be. It cannot. Likewise, how could something which produces sin, nothing but death, and the more it it is exposed, is shown to be sinful beyond measure, how can that be anything but the worst? It cannot. It's the worst. The law is good. Sin is bad. For all you little people out there, the law is good. The sin is bad. If you don't listen to anything else, listen to that. God's law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, and sin, it's bad, because what it produces is further bad, ultimately so bad that it is bad beyond measure. That's why the old Puritans called it the sinfulness of sin. The utter sinfulness of it. Sin was producing death, Paul says, through the law which is good, but sin isn't produced because of it, It's not inherent within the law, it's inherent within sin. Sin's the culprit, not the law. And do you also notice here in verse 13 that there really are two uses of the law of God? Notice it with me. The goodness of the law is shown by God Himself in order that sin might be shown to be in reality what it really is. Sin, that's why he says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. That's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? In order that sin might be shown to be sin... What is he saying? In order for sin to be shown for what it really is, sin. He's saying that God contrasts the goodness of the law by showing the badness of man's sinful response to it. And then he also says, there's another use of the law, he says that sin not only produces death through what is good, that's the law, but sin is also so ultimately to be seen through the commandment in its essence to be beyond measure. As St. Anselm once said, so very true, we have not yet seen what a great weight sin is. It's a weighty thing. It's a despicable thing. It's utterly sinful. And so I ask you, is this the way you see your sin? Do you see it as exceedingly sinful? Do you see your sin as having brought you not life, but death? You see your utter sinfulness through the lens of the Ten Commandments. The perfect reflection of God's character, both as it portrays who He is and how it portrays how we're supposed to live with one another, men to men, women to women, men to women, women to men, all of the dynamics of the Ten Commandments. I want you to bow your head with me, and as you do, I want you to listen to the Ten Commandments. Because you might be one of those saying today, well, Paul used an example there of covetousness and that's not my sin. Well, that may be true. And he may have used an example that you can't relate to, but I want to ask you the question this morning. How are you doing with the Ten Commandments themselves? And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, third, and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing excuse me, steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Father, I pray, I pray for all of us, myself included, that we see what a great weight sin is that we realize that Your holy and perfect and good law has been placed alongside the very Adamic character of my life and it is true that sin has deceived me and through the commandment killed me. I have recognized, O holy God, That the standard of righteousness is beyond me. I cannot attain to it. Please help me. Deliver me. I am a transgressor. My sin is before me. I've sinned against You. I've done what is evil in Your sight. Lord, I, I violate these ten commandments. I I do them every day. I I cannot obey Your law. Oh, but I rejoice that Paul says here in this very chapter, Romans 7, that thanks be to God who delivers us Who delivers us from the body of this death. Lord, I pray for everyone here that in that sullen condition, having been whipped and beaten by the law, that you would take out now this needle and leave only the gospel thread as it has bound up my wound. I fall on the mercy of Jesus Christ. I cannot obey the law. But I thank You that Jesus Christ did. That He fulfilled every single aspect of the law. That He's perfect in character. He is that One, the only One of whom You would say, unless your righteousness shall exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You shall be perfect, for your heavenly Father is perfect. We are not perfect, but He is. And that He died for us. As sinners, we stand before you, God, with no hope, no help, lost, as Spurgeon says. And you have delivered us. Your gospel has saved us through your Son and His righteousness, not our own. Shake us, Father, from the belief that we could contribute anything to our deliverance. May we fall squarely and only upon the mercy of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. May we place our faith, our confidence, our trust only in Him. And may we repent even of the thought, let alone the actions that made us think that somehow we could obey the law. That we could do enough good works to satisfy your holy justice. We cannot. We appeal to Christ. For it is in His name we pray. Amen.